This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Earlier this year, Consumer Reports, in collaboration with the KPOR Center, distributed three short films that set out to explore and to create public awareness about how biases in algorithms and datasets result in unfair practices for communities of color, often without their knowledge. In this episode of the show, I talked to Lily Gengas, Chief Technology Community Officer at the KPOR Center, and Amira Dalla, Director of Impact Partnerships and Programs at Consumer Reports, about the film and about the state of AI at the intersection of race and equity, and the importance of educating the public if we want to see change in the future of AI and human values. Consumer Reports is an independent, nonprofit organization that works side by side with communities to create a fairer, safer, and healthier world. They do it by fighting to put consumers' needs first in the marketplace and by empowering consumers with the trusted knowledge that they depend on to make better and more informed choices. The KPOR Center's work focuses at the intersection of racial justice and technology to create a more inclusive technology sector for all. Founded by Freda Kapoor Klein and Mitch Kapoor, the center seeks to develop a vision and practice to make the tech industry more diverse and inclusive. The Kapoor Foundation, alongside Kapoor Capital and the STEM Education Initiative, SMASH, takes a comprehensive approach to expand access to computer science education, conduct research on disparities in the technology pipeline, support nonprofit organizations, and invest in gap-closing startups and entrepreneurs. The KPOR Center seeks to intentionally dismantle barriers to tech and deployment of technologies across the leaky tech pipeline through research-driven practices, gap-closing investments, increased access to computer science education, supporting and partnering with mission-aligned organizations, advocating for needed policy change, and more. Hi, Lily. Hi, Deb. Hi, Amira. Hi, Deb. So, This is such a pleasure for me, Amira and Lily, when I first got the request from Consumer Reports to have you come on the show, I was truly excited. Ethical and equitable technology and the consequences of launching and populating our tech ecosystem and our human environments with products that are often developed by a very homogeneous group of people and a set of perspectives without thought for how they might impact the diversity of human groups and experiences in ways that perpetuate existing equalities. This this idea has Uh, been the focus of the show from day one in March of 2020. So it was particularly exciting to have you uh, come on the show and talk about the three films that have just come out as a collaboration between Consumer Reports and the KPOR Center. And I, you know, having worked on this uh, show and these ideas since March of 2020, since that time, I've seen a proliferation of a discourse about equitable technology and the dangers of inequitable technology really gained traction in popular culture. The terrain has grown so vastly and the amount of voices participating in this conversation has really uh, grown substantially. I've seen movies take this on from the social dilemma to coded bias. I've seen new academic work emerging out of this. I've seen a growth in popular culture and media report. Um, and 
uh, considerable growth in terms of legislation and pushes toward governmental regulation as well. So this conversation is, to put it very simply, I think quite significantly populated at this point. And now it's 2023, or I started participating in this conversation in 2020. And in 2023, you've just released bad input. So I guess the question is, why now? What's happening right now that led you want to launch this project? Uh, Well, Deb, thank you so much for having us. I feel like being a part of these conversations is so crucial to the broader movement. And uh, I personally, Amira, I'm very excited to be here. And I really appreciate this as like a first intro question as to why, why did we do this? Why is now the time? Um, And for me, this is uh, a little bit personal. We've reached a point where big data and algorithms are making decisions for us every day in many ways. But because of the lack of transparency, people have no idea that they're being used to make decisions for them. And whether those decisions are unfair, equitable, or safe in their best interest. The thought behind releasing bad input was to bring people into the discussion to make them aware of how these technologies work, how they're being used in everyday ways, and how they replicate old social systems that are often racist, classist, and sexist. When we first set out on the path for this, there was a lot of discussion around AI and algorithms and discourse, but there is so much more now. And we found at that time, there wasn't enough being done around public engagement and how everyday individuals were being able to understand these complex issues, these tools, and the impacts that they would have. And we thought at that point, we need people to understand this technology so they can move from that unknown stage to being activated on how to make it better. We need public understanding and dialogue in a topic that impacts us all, some more than others, before we continue to build it. So at that point, we knew the moment was was clear to us. And as we continued through and then launched it this year in 2023, it has become even more part of public discourse. And we're still seeing that people have not fully understand the process that is going on and how it impacts them in their everyday. So it it felt crucial then, and it feels even more crucial now that we've launched. I would add as well, as, as you shared some of those examples as well of more mainstream media being able to have decoded biases, right? And types of movies, a social dilemma, and more and more as we start to see. And to Amira's point, I think one of the part of that, and probably coded bias is the one that had had a more strategic outreach to get the community to understand, have youth, have different groups, have folks who are not in those rooms of academic, the folks who are not in those tech rooms building the products, having the everyday person, right? And being able to have folks, somebody like my mom, somebody like my cousin, somebody like family members who aren't necessarily in this space, but are probably the ones being the most disproportionately impacted, right? What is their role and how do we engage them? And so I think that's part of the the learnings. And as you mentioned, seeing the a growing uh, opportunity here as well to just educate our community so then that way they have an opportunity to share their thoughts, their concerns, but also ultimately be able to advocate. But if you don't know if you're being impacted, how can you also advocate? And so building upon those momentum of the past years, and I hope that we still continue to see more because one, two, three films compared to the thousands that come out every year, it's not enough in my opinion. I, th- I think that uh, the most powerful tool we have is storytelling. It's being able to share a story. So I, I would love to see even more and more, um, especially coming out of the pandemic, where we saw how important, you know, being connected on the Internet is. But we also saw how clear it was of who has access and who didn't. 
and the racial disparities, the economic disparities were very, very evident of who had access to school, who had access to healthcare, who had access to good information. And so we're still living in this backdrop of all this AI conversations right now that are like every day, pretty much there's a new headline. Yet we still have, you know, a significant amount of millions of people across the U.S. still not even connected to the Internet with the right digital skills to be able to participate, despite their everyday life being digitized around them much more rapidly. And from the Caper Foundation, which is the group that, that I represent, where we were able to launch this partnership with Consumer Reports, we saw Consumer Reports' huge reach in the community, right, being able to directly get into homes of, of millions and millions of people. And we wanted to make sure that we were also reaching new audiences. So for, for us and the Caper Foundation, we launched our Equitable Tech Policy Initiative, which really focused on making sure that folks are not only participating, being protected, but also being empowered to participate safely and build economic opportunity as well through all the, the opportunities that tech can, can bring. And, and we launched this initiative back in November 2022. We did over a little $5 million in grant funding to organizations that include expert organizations like the Algorithmic Justice League, who, as you know, led the, the Coded Bias movie as well. And we have DAR with Dr. Gibru that's been just, just an amazing expert across the issues, not only in the U.S., but globally. And of course, Consumer Reports and many other partners to help raise the awareness and also continue to build on the infrastructure to ultimately be able to, to get more of our community voices that are usually left out to participate in the advocacy that as we are seeing now, it's even if you're an expert, there's just so much stuff happening. So who is helping translate some of these insights and takeaways to our communities? We hope that these three short films, narratives help to start build that. I wanted to actually pick up on that last point because there are, as you pointed out, just so many things happening, not just things happening in terms of the organizations participating, but so much happening in terms of the consequences, uh, oftentimes un ethical or inequitable of technological production. You know, I try to cover a wide swath of the areas in which ethics and technology converge. And one of the both, I think, um, delights and also challenges of hosting a show like this is there are just too many. There are so many different areas. It's very hard to kind of pick a focus um, because this intersection of ethics and technology and the proliferation of unintended and damaging consequences of technology are, are really everywhere. And as I mentioned previously, this show has been running since March of 2020. If you go into the archives, you'll see that the themes and the focus points of the episodes have, have shifted over three plus years, um, in part following my own intellectual interests, in part responding to major landmark events uh, in the culture that have called attention to some of the dangers of unethical technology. And so I'm curious, from your perspective, having also worked in the space and having been part of this conversation for a while, what have you seen change? What kinds of focus points are emerging? You know, for me, at least, uh, I remember very strongly in, for example, January of 2021, reaching back from November, I was very focused on democracy and tech for, I think, what are probably obvious reasons. Prior to that, there was a strong focus in the show on healthcare and, and ethics. And now, you know, I see myself 
uh, spending a lot of time on, for example, large language models. Um, again, following my own intellectual interest and in responding to the culture. So I, I asked this question to see what you see going on in the culture. What kinds of shifts or focus areas have you seen emerge? What kind of changes are taking place right now in the culture in terms of highlighting or drawing focus or attention or a, a need to elevate voices in this particular moment? It's such a rich question because I wish I can say that a lot of things have changed, Deb, and I don't think they have. And if anything, I think that we're losing that uh, moment of consciousness that the pandemic brought us, right? Where for one, even if it was for one second, the entire world was able to see its own humanity and be detached from the technology, right? Being able to actually see your neighbor go out and or like just just the different challenges that we saw for the moment of period, I think made people a lot of, I hope, made a lot of people really reflect, especially the ones with the most privilege, right? The ones with the most uh, resources available, just realize that we're all human at the, at, at the end of the day, yet we are not, the disparities just are just so evident, right? And so we saw this whole wave, especially in tech, right, where as soon as a lot of that happened, where you see a trillion dollar industry that is literally pays on average 125% above average a wage rate has a significant impact in the employment and the overall economy of the U.S. And when we were at that point, we saw the downturn, right? And then when we saw the, the George Floyd moment come in, and then we saw all these companies suddenly flip on the other side and started hiring more. And then we saw these commitments and we started to see more growth. And then now fast forward to where we're at, we're getting to a sense of this year of, and we can look at some of the layoffs, right? In the tech space. Again, that, that similar downturn, we're again going into another election cycle. So it feels like we're repeating the history of these patterns with different topics that come in and, and come out of people's attention. Yet underlying is we're still seeing the folks that I, I support and I, I, um, I work for every day and day in, day out, which are our communities who are not part of these conversations, the folks out in East Oakland, right, that are sometimes aren't even being provided the resources that are needed in their own language. And so we still have a lot of this widened disparity, unfortunately, that I'm really concerned about how fast, how much wider is that going to get with a lot of these new technologies and emerging technologies? Because it feels like the digital skill gap, instead of being closing, it feels like it's widening if we don't have more opportunities specifically created. And I think this is why being able to have content that people can relate to, that it speaks to them in, in a way that they can understand as well, but it's also not uh, minimizing the complexity, right? Because I think that that's an important aspect. And so I do think that now we have seen, and I see it from my own work uh, in Oakland, in, but across different parts of different cities that I've been also being able to part of, to be part of, where we see a lot of organizations that are working in coalition specifically to better understand and prepare themselves and build infrastructure for closing the digital equity. So how can we have conversations, you know, about these large language models and we still have kids who are still struggling in multifamily homes being able to get the schooling that they need, right? And so I do think that now the empowering part is that leveraging our uh, the tool that we all have, which is storytelling, in a way that can resonate with more people, I think can help bring in voices that have been left out. And I think that that's the important part here. Just as a quick story, like we had our, our launch out in, in Oakland uh, as I mentioned, I'm going to keep saying that for the folks who are, on the, who are listening, but we had a community screening as part of our launch. 
And we wanted to have it in a way where, in a place where people feel comfortable coming, accessible. So we had a new Parkway Theater. We had a, a room full of multi-gen, multiracial, different languages. A lot of these episodes are also available in Spanish. We wanted to bring it in ways that in other, in other, in additional languages. So then that way we can engage more people. And the the feedback we got after they're like, oh my gosh, like wow, thank you so much for educating. So what do we do now? How do we mobilize? What actions can we take? And and this is the first time for some of these people that even though some of these uh, stats and some of the videos have been well documented and researched and there's a lot of papers out there, still not, it's not reaching some of the audiences, right? It's still not reaching some of the people that's most impacted. But now with, with that event that we had in Oakland where we had folks come in, now we have community partners that are interested in hosting their own screenings. We have conversation starters that for for people to start to enter this conversation, right, um, and be able to also participate along the ways. I think it's part of the the culture that it's not un unique to this specific work that we're doing because we've seen it in many different formats, right, across the years. But I think it's being able to, for us to bring this unique partnership and bring in some of these different organizations in a way that can be more easily found, right? If you go to badinput.org, You'll see a lot of different organizations. We're going to keep adding them in. We're going to keep hopefully helping the community who may be totally new to this topic have an entry point, have an entry point to be part of the conversation and to also be part of the solution. I would love to double tap on a couple of things Lily mentioned because all of those were really important points. The first is that it's really hard to feel like things have changed. And that's because what both of you identified is that we've been so reactive instead of proactive. And so when we react, we end up being like, how do we address the harm we've caused versus how do we prevent the harm that we're creating? And I see that so much right now as the conversation has gone on to the next, which is like generative AI, because we're in a race to produce technology. We don't need a race. We, we just don't need a race. When we race, things go wrong. And then we have to be reactive versus proactive. And we don't properly account for what we're designing and how it impacts people. And this is a cycle that we have continuously repeated in technology. And it started very early on. And many people will reference the unlimited scroll, the idea that we created something that was fun and convenient and kept people engaged. And then most of those people regretted it not long after. Since ChatGPT launched, we saw immediately new cycles every single day of the next organization releasing technology before it was completed or before it was checked or validated or made in an equitable way. We saw Google do that and produce that before even people who worked at Google felt that it was safe to release or produce that and put it out in the world. So I think the racing culture... Uh, has made it really detrimental for us and adds the case for so many more people needing to be part of the conversation to jump in. But I will say one of the things that I have seen change that Lily also mentioned was just I've seen no matter how much we've done so far that the gaps are still widening. And that's what frightens me. And that's what I'd love to call attention to for other people in terms of who has access to these resources, how are they used and how they impact people. And I think so much of the film actually points at that is that we're going to see continuous economic opportunity going at a big, bigger gap and bigger wide uh, in the case of how people are able to own things like properties, get access to loans, be able to have 
financial decisions that are made for them. And we're just going to continue to see that go. And we already kind of are. And I think that that's frightening from a perspective as someone who's worked in this for a while to being like, oh, uh, how has it gotten worse instead of better? And what we need is a lot more people proactively thinking about these things as we continue on. To flip that over Deb, I would I would be like, what can change? What do we want to see? As Amira was mentioning, what are the, the possible things, that, the possible solutions, the changes that we want to see? As somebody who is a software engineer myself, and, I, and I've been in those rooms, I'm like, I believe in the power of technology. If we can apply it in a way that is really closing gaps of access of needs and, and utilities. So I'm actually looking, I'm, I'll put the challenge to the listeners. How how can we actually change the fact that we are widening to closing? What's missing? How can we further innovate? We have so much tremendous power and technology and information under fingertips. If you have access, right, to be connected. So for those who have access and have the privilege, how are you innovating? What are you changing? What are your motivating factors for this? So I would love to to. I think we're really at that intersection point. We we got to flip it. We got to flip it from reactive to proactive to innovative and having that inclusive opportunity to really, really unleash all the innovation that technology can have. And we can't keep creating, you know, economies of harm and undoing those harms because we're going to just end up in the same place without actually looking at how we can close those gaps and create new systems, new worlds in a way that is reflective of, 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 the, of the demographics, right, of the change that we have in the U.S., across the world. So looking... Looking forward to what the listeners have to say on this topic. <laughs> I mean, I want to respond to a couple of these things here because I love the challenge. It's really exciting. And, you know, for me, it's oftentimes very disappointing to see that the technological innovations that get funding and that emerge are so asymmetrically related to the areas that actually need support or that might advance the quality of life for a diversity of people around the world. And Amira, to you know, catch on some of the things that you said and, and Lily to pull in some of the things that you uh, said as well about both the speed of technological progress, which you argue we don't actually need, as well as the direction of technological progress. I agree with you on an ethical level that the that the speed is unnecessary and, and damaging and harmful. But I don't think it's a big head scratcher as to why technological progress advances with such a rapid pace without oftentimes slowing down to think about the consequences. There's a lot of talk especially in Silicon Valley, where I live, uh, I hear it all the time, about technological production advancing toward building a better world or making the world a better place. Ask any tech innovator who is you know, creating a, a new Uber app to move chickens around what they're doing. I'm using this as a farcical example. And they say that they're changing the world, right? Again, a farcical example. And I've built up a little bit of cynicism, and I'm going to apologize in advance for the cynicism embedded in this question, because I, I do try not to be cynical, but I think it needs to be said. The problems that the films have pointed out are just very well known and documented, and they have been for a while. I appreciate that the films are bringing these ideas to the public, but Kathy O'Neill, in her landmark Weapons of Math Destruction, very thoroughly outlines the dangers and consequences of AI in mortgage lending, the subject of the first film, um, in terms of perpetuating inequality. 
Coded Bias, a very popular film, and many other very visible project people across the board have been thinking and talking about the power inequalities perpetuated by facial recognition. And famous thinkers in medicine and across academia, uh, medical practices and law have shown the dangers of uh, algorithmic bias in medicine, from Harvard's professor Evelyn Hammonds to Dr. Robert Pearl, the former CEO of Kaiser Health, to the famous sociologist Dr. Anthony Hatch, all of whom I've hosted on the show in separate episodes to talk about this issue and their expertise. So I'm very well aware, and I think many people in the public are also very aware of the dangers of uh, technological products and the ways in which they spread inequalities. But for all this talk and widespread knowledge, I have not seen very much actually change. As you pointed out, I think that you see this as well. In fact, I would argue that these technologies are proliferating at higher rates than ever. They're moving faster than ever. Um, Witness, for example, the current proliferation of large language models, uh, LLMs, which I predict will do a lot of the harm or perpetuate or escalate a lot of the harm that I've just described in encoding ideas and biases from the past, entrenching them further in to a knowledge economy that ways are going to be deeply inequitable. Just to give one small example, LLMs such as ChatGPT use uh, the writing available on the internet to generate new text. And since the writing on the internet is, and this should be obvious, uh, unequally representative and vastly overrepresented by a particular group of people, educated, geographically located in the West, wealthy, white, and male, those kinds of voices are going to uh, be even further entrenched as LLMs uh, spin out new content and then absorb that content and start to feed it back as well in a kind of ongoing feedback loop that I think more tightly constricts whose voices we will hear and listen to. And as I said, I don't think that there's a lot of head scratching about why nothing changes, even with so many resources and so much knowledge and that knowledge so widely available about the inequitable nature of AI. To me, at least it's obvious. AI is enormously profitable when it can compute and assess and predict using quantities of data that humans cannot process. It's incredibly efficient. And if individuals, uh, oftentimes the people who don't have the power to fight back against algorithms or challenge them or don't have the technical knowledge or the knowledge of how to fight for themselves in systems or the time required to fight for yourself against a system that has, for example, denied you a loan, there's a kind of perception among those who are generating these technology and profiting from them that that's kind of just the cost of doing business. The individual may just have to kind of suffer for the benefit of making things more efficient for companies or processes. So companies that create AI are enormously profitable. And because they're enormously profitable, they get venture capital funding. They make money for shareholders. And for all of that language that I talked about in Silicon Valley about changing the world with big ideas and disruption, what I think ultimately matters in Silicon Valley is a financial impact. In fact, I think disruption uh, is largely incentivized by market disruption, not technological disruption. Again, I'm apologizing for my cynicism, but I oftentimes wonder, does this knowledge actually change anything if the financial structures that undergird technological production or the financial incentives that mobilize technological culture don't change and change in fundamental ways. I don't see a possibility for anything moving forward. You know, I, I don't I don't know what any of this thought ultimately comes to. I mean, maybe it changes the conversation, but I'm not sure that it changes the system if the system still rewards um, things that are financially profitable and if what technologies get funded and if what motivates technological production to begin with is that tremendous financial reward. Help me. <laughs> Help me. <laughs> 
<laughs> help me with my cynicism. We all feel you. We are. We all feel extremely, you know, frustrated, disappointed. But at the same time, we can't also lose hope, right? We can't also lose our own agency of being able to ask the critical questions that are needed. We can't sit back and let these few, whether the investors, the technologists, or the few people that have access to this, be able to continue to just do as they've done even faster, right? Because that's not that's not gonna ultimately gonna help anyone. And, and but I totally feel you as far as your the cynicism. I think we all the listeners here as well. Like I. And is well founded. I mean, I, I think, but but and on that note, I think is is important to continue to find the opportunity. What this is a really a critical moment to find what how do we flip it? What are those levers that we can move? Whether it's on a short term, medium term, and long term strategy, right? Especially for the the Caper Foundation. Just as an example, we saw to continue on that cynicism. Like we we saw that in the last ten years, at least in. We think about who is who gets to design and build and and be in those rooms that are creating a lot of this technology that we're experiencing. We saw an, an only one percent increase in the black tech workforce, right? And this is amidst all these different initiatives. This is amidst all the the population growth across the U.S. This is amidst being able to look at tech ecosystems outside of being outside of just Silicon Valley area, right? And so. There's definitely that part where I think it, it kind of brings us back to the foundational items that we have to uh, look at where we have power and where we want to continue to build power. How do we increase opportunities for more equitable computer science education, for more alternative tech pathways so that way we can get more of the workforce to be part of the, the designers, the builders, the folks who are able to conduct the studies that are needed, right? But then we also have the role as as consumers ourselves. We have the role as who we get to elect to run for some of these offices. And that's where we kind of get into this longer term strategy, right? Of what's the what's the short term versus the long term. But in either way, in order to be able to develop those types of strategies, we have to have a foundational starting point of understanding and awareness. And yes, for some groups, this might be very accessible information, but it's not for the majority, right? And that's what we keep finding out as we continue to do this work, especially when we look at a lot of the organizations who... I'll keep sharing the example of the pandemic because I lived through it and I continue to see it, but I see a momentum there that I don't want us to lose, which we saw organizations that never saw themselves as tech companies, never saw themselves as tech oriented, whether they're the ones that are feeding some of our own house, whether they're the ones that are helping parents continue to get educated to help their kids, whether they're immigration services, et cetera, across the area. But now they all, all have looked at investing their own internal infrastructure, right? of how can they leverage more technology themselves? How are they upskilling their own workforce to better send services? So there's a new appetite, I think, here. But we also want to make sure that those folks who are on the front lines, we saw them also be directly targeted, as we saw through through some of the, the cyberbullying, the the attacks. So there's a, this this is a, a digital rights safety issue. And this is one of the reasons why, at least from, from us, from a Caper Foundation, we want to make sure that we are helping build an infrastructure that has been missing and it's needed specifically for all those different organizations that I mentioned who are doing the direct work day in and day out. Organizations, as you mentioned, Dr. Sophia Noble, who is helping build that infrastructure. We funded some of their work. We also funded some of the other organizations, as I mentioned, AJL, DAR, and so many that I think is is needed. And if anything, on my end, what I would love to do is do a call out for all the different 
funders who aren't necessarily funding this type of work. They might not be in the space of tech, but we really need you to be part of this conversation. We really need that support to be able to combat our own cynicism, right? Uh, that is well-founded. But we, this is a time for all of us to really continuously stay informed, educate each other, but we need to do it in, in a more intentional, integrated way where we are also centering on the voices of the, mo- the ones that are the most marginalized. And, and I, would, I would say that I would love to see more, especially as we get into the tech policy conversations that I've been part of, the racial disparities. Yes, they're mentioned, but they're not directly being centered. And I think that that's the part we can have all this amazing technical research, but if we're not getting to the core of how we, why are we even got here, which is just the fundamental racist structure that this country was built, then we're really just circling around. And I think we need, this is a time that it's so obvious, especially as we see with the, the, the bias in all these algorithms, right? And we've seen all the data, the studies, and there are still people who still are circling around. Well, this is the wake-up call that we cannot be circling around. We have to find a way to better resolve that, and that requires having the right representation across the entire building cycle of all these products, across the entire usage cycle of as consumers, as policymakers, as educators. And so I, I, I think that this is really a, a time and space that, because we're all tech, we are all officially tech, right, whether folks believe it or not. And I think we each have our own role to play in this in this time and space. So I'll get off my soapbox, Deb, and then I'll hand it to Amira. I love Lily on her soapbox. It's the best. I just I I nod and I'm like, yes, that. And I those points are great. And how do I bring these all in? And so much of what Lily said is so much of how I feel because when I talk about AI or generative AI and even these terms of ethics, I always try to make clear that these issues are not new. They are just being amplified by the tools right now. And in some cases, they're being supercharged. So we need to actually go to the root of them, which sometimes uh, includes non-technical solutions to get to there. Um, And I hear you, Deb, on the cynicism. And I feel like a lot of people often think I'm a cynic, and I promise I'm an optimist. I promise. But it is really easy to fall into this path where we're like, how do these things get better? And I think of so often working in nonprofit tech spaces about how change is like a marathon, not a sprint. Some of the challenges in these spaces is we're not going to see the change tomorrow. But over years, decades, we will feel and see that. And that's where I that's where I'm really gunning for when I think about big wins or big evidence drives and and really reflecting on conversations. Because right now, where we are is totally different than where we were a decade ago. And that, to me, is change and how we have fueled a conversation to bring so many people in the door. But I don't think we've brought enough people in the door. And we need to continue curating and changing the way that conversation is going. And when it comes to Silicon Valley or big tech, like I'm I'm a super cynic because they have the power and that power is frightening. They have so much power and they're driven by shareholders and profits that uh, that won't change their driving factor anytime soon. So when we think about the levers, we need to think about different forms of power. Uh, And I am a huge believer of people power. People power is where movements have changed. We have seen that consistently from time, and they have set the direction, which is why we need to create more resources and tools to bring people along so that not only do they understand the issues, but they feel they have that power. And truthfully, in 
in big tech or Silicon Valley, one of the issues that's really come into play in the, that has brought us to where we are is the lack of decentralized power across organizations. And so I'm really happy for the Uber for chickens and I want them to succeed. I also just at the core don't want them to get eaten up by Uber. And we need regulations to allow that to happen so that a lot of these companies can actually live separately and bring different versions of power so that we have we have the ability to change them. And so I think that historically, when it came to big tech, a lot of the companies folded and they still do. And so we need to advocate in different types of ways. We need to advocate for that decentralized power. We need to advocate for these voices, for the often marginalized and hurt groups and more than others. And I think people sort of get that. It is a little bit of a struggle on how they do that still. And that's where we're really trying to lead some information. And I think often back to a survey we we led recently at Consumer Reports that asked individuals who was responsible for protecting the privacy and security of ourselves. And not surprising, about 33% selected the federal government and 33, 32% uh, chose companies, but a whopping 25% picked individuals. And while I actually want to place most of the responsibility on the government or companies, I think individuals know that they have a role to play in this. And that to me is a form of power. That to me means that individuals know that they can vote with their feet, they can hold people accountable, they can protect communities. And that to me is where my optimism comes from, because holding on to that people power and us, many more of us believing we have it can make that change and can push for that change that we want to see in this industry. Let's take a second to talk about the three short films themselves. Each of the three films uh, that make up bad input as a kind of whole focus on an area in which AI may cause harm. The three areas include mortgages, medicine, and facial recognition. And just to quickly explain what I think the premise of all three films are together, uh, for listeners who maybe haven't seen the films, um, what bad input together foregrounds is the way in which artificial intelligence causes harm, particularly for historically marginalized groups. In very basic terms, and again, this is just some background for listeners, um, AI is a kind of automated computation that uses mathematical formulas or algorithms to process often large amounts of historical data amassed about an issue or a topic or experience in order to allow humans um, who cannot in a sense, compute that vast amount of data to perceive or synthesize or infer information. And the value of AI is often in its ability to take that large amount of data and provide information about an individual case. So for example, a podcast listening platform might use AI and amass data about people who have listened to your kind of uh, shared listening preferences or, or habits or your educational background or your geographical location to predict and to suggest to you that you might like this podcast. All good, right? Um, so far, I mean, it's sometimes helpful to have uh, that kind of predictive ability. It, it's great to have AI that can really target and pinpoint and specify and elevate certain content that, that seems intuitively to be uh, interesting to us. The problem is, though, that the data oftentimes includes biases and historical contexts of inequality that get embedded in the algorithm. So to take this listener platform algorithm as a case, say that you come from a group of people who historically did not have access to education or white collar jobs, or you live in a geographical location that 
hasn't historically seen populations go to college because of poverty. It's not very likely that anybody who comes in that demographic will have recommended to them a podcast from an educational institution that's talking about technological production. So even if you are the kind of person who might be impacted by the unethical consequence of technology, this podcast, for example, may never get recommended to you. You may never come across it um, because of those historical biases that are embedded in the algorithm and in the data itself. Um, the algorithm is, is itself neutral morally, but it is only as functional and it will only provide the kinds of outputs that the data allows it to compute. So the outcomes that get embedded in the algorithm are ahistorical in a sense. They don't take into account the historical reasons for why you live in a geographical area or why you didn't go to college. It just kind of looks neutrally at that data and feeds that data into a, a process and then gives you an outcome that's a computation of that data. And that data does not account for the historical context or the reasons why a group may not have had certain choices available or has had certain outcomes. But um, if we're using my fictional example of a podcast recommending system, the data will determine what you may listen to, whose ideas you may end up coming into contact with or not, what you know, what information you have access to in ways that uh, draw from historical context that ha may have very little to do with your individuality as a listener. And I think the most dangerous part of this comes in when we see that this technological process working this way amplifies and encodes existing biases and inequalities or historical realities that we may want to actually change in the future. And what the algorithm ends up doing is actually cementing those historical inequalities and amplifying them, especially since every prediction or suggestion that an algorithm produces results in a new reality created that by that very algorithm, which in turn produces new data for the algorithm, which further uh, leverages that data to entrench the very premise that the algorithm worked out of. And the consequences might be um, mildly significant when it comes to for example, podcast recommendations based on geographical data or educational data or previous listening choices. But it's critical in many areas, in particular the three that you point out, mortgage lending, medical technologies, and, and uh, facial recognition. So I see the prevalence of this effect in so many places. And I'm curious what made you decide to focus on these three areas, again, mortgage lending, medicine, and facial recognition. Why are these three areas for you particularly important and consequential uh, in your view, to the dangers of AI, particularly, especially as I just described its ability to encode and intensify historical inequalities or conditions and to program, so to speak, the present and the future in so doing. Love, love this question, because I think this is the, 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 the key of why we wanted to do this work. And I'll just do a high, kind of like a high level broad stroke of, of why and, and what we wanted to spark and a little mirror up, provide a little bit more of the the hashtag BTS <laughs> from the creative side of consumer reports, all the different directors that are involved, the producers, the, the experts, et cetera. Cause I think that in itself is, it's a really great uh, learning case study as well that we would love to have more of the, the listeners also just learn um, and ideally also create. <laughs> but from a high level, I think Deb, you mentioned, you know, that it's like neutral, seemingly neutral, right? But it's kind of just as, as simple as, as the campaign is called bad input, right? Bad input in, bad input out. And, it, and when you think about the, the consequences of just the realities, right? If, if we think of just as an example, the, the redlining histories, right? Some, some folks may be educated, some folks may not. And as we're seeing, you know, certain states and, and, and areas like ban certain books that allow us to continue to understand 
some of the historical historical impl- implications were also in an in an even a more dangerous time of of not uh, understanding some of these complex histories, as you laid it out, that have been codified and, and as Amira mentioned earlier, uh, continue to be used if unchecked, if not audited, not corrected uh, at the right point before it can be scaled at a point that then it just, you know, we lose any type of understandability around it. That's that's one of the biggest issues, right, that, we're, that we are currently in the moment. But ideally, hopefully, what, what the reason we wanted to focus on these three specific Topics and we went through a lot of different topics. It was such a really creative process that I'm I'm just very thankful as well to to be able to have participated in in having those conversations. We had a whole slew of different topics. We were like, what about hiring? What about this? What about like all these different topics? But I think going back to what are some of the most universal topics that an everyday person can relate with that is also the most consequential. In some of the areas as well, where we've seen a lot of this technology already permeate, where we have enough data points as well to be able to say, here are the facts that we've been observing, right? To hopefully have people ask the question, how can we do this differently? Is there a better way? Are there new ways? And even though some of the topics may seem kind of like the Debbie Downer, the real opportunity here is like, are there new systems that we can be creating? Are there new designs? Are there new models? Are there new technologies, right? It's, it's when you think about, uh, for example, as the, the medical device, right? The, the pulse oximeter. I, I, I spoke to some prof- professionals, nurses. I spoke to my mom who was, you know, also in the medical field. They're like, wow, all this time, that's what we've been relying on. We didn't understand, uh, you know, what how pervasive it was because for them, it was just an everyday tool. They didn't have the opportunity to spark that question and think about like, wait, is this actually accurate? It just became part of the routine. So if it's, as, if it's even getting some of these folks who are in the everyday work a moment to pause and reflect and be like, wow, can we do this differently? And what consequences does it have, you know, in the, the longer, longer term of, of the services that they're providing? I think it's a really uh, interesting time. But we wanted to start there in some of those, the home, the health, the safety, the most universal topics, the most consequential, the way the ways that it's also multi-generational, multicultural. Like we wanted to make sure that we were able to bring in uh, those insights. Yeah, thank you so much, Lily. I mean, even Deb, what you were saying before, people's experience of consumer tech is often very worse depending on race, gender, age, disability, and so many other factors. And it really happens when manufacturers don't account for diverse people's experience when building products and rely upon outdated data sets. And Consumer Reports has been around for a very long time and is well known for speaking up directly to and for consumers across the nation on issues they care about and that impact them widely. And in doing so, It has a large history of advocating for financial fairness, um, helping people make healthy choices and testing IoT devices. And these are areas that as an organization, we understand and we have done a lot of research and reporting centered around prior to even bad input. Um, But more than that, these are what Lily was saying. These are areas that people depend upon at some point in their lives. We rely upon loans for our businesses or our homes. We rely upon hospitals and medical products uh, to help us when we're sick. We rely upon governments and police force to keep us safe. If the systems we rely upon are using faulty or inequitable technology in ways that are harming communities, we need to know and we need to act. And we wanted to cover areas that people could relate to. 
that they can consider how AI or algorithms might have been used as part of the decision making for them, uh, whether it is a pulse oximeter or buying a video doorbell and what that actually means. I think of pulse oximeter as a physical product, so not necessarily AI driven, but what we really wanted to share through that is how is big data making decisions that are impacting communities, and then how are those supercharged into AI models? And so that was really critical for us to bring people along in those ways to not only showcase how it is the new tools and services coming out, but it's existing structural public frameworks that are needing to be revamped and considered at a critical level and the products that they're using. And that has been core to kind of the direction we went into and the themes we picked for so many of the reasons that Lily has mentioned and also the uh, expert opinions we brought along with us because those are the voices we trusted, we wanted to amplify, uh, and have been doing this work for way longer. And by way longer, I mean by generally many years. Uh, and we found that that was really important. They were voices that we knew were protecting communities, were standing up to structural power, and were actually advocately looking at these things with critical decision-making lenses. And we thought that critical lens of decision-making was so important to bring up in these use cases, especially when you relate them to places people are really comfortable, relate to, and understand so that they can start to unpack how those impact them at an individual level. And so we really wanted to focus in on those ones to, to really break down what is the inequity that's happened there? How is it being perpetrated and even exasperated right now? And how do people see themselves as part of that story? Was there anything that surprised you in the research or the information generated by or reflected in the films? What did you think that you knew that the films changed your mind about or made you think differently about, if anything? Oh, I have a few of these. I will say uh, the films were a learning experience, even in the production mode and understanding like how different people were thinking critically about the different issues at play. There's one particular expert in the film, Chris Gilliard, who makes a comment that asks us whether to consider like what makes better neighbors. And it didn't change my perspective, but it really reinforced an idea I've been playing around with for a while on safety for whom. In the comment, he alludes to the idea that people buying video doorbells do that because it makes them feel safe, but they don't actually acknowledge that it makes their home, area, space potentially unsafer for communities around them. And I think it's a really important part of the conversation because the world we live in operates right now on trade-offs. My choice to make myself safer means that someone else will be less safe, but that's not the way we should be designing products. We have the ability to create them in a way where they are safe for everyone. And that's the world we need to choose to live in. And I think that was a huge narrative change for me. And when we design, we design for the least safest person, or we design for safety for all, and not requiring people to make trade-offs just because we are saying, if you want to be safer, your safety will sacrifice another person's safety. And historically, that has looked like marginalized communities being less safe. And so that was a huge narrative change for me. 
uh, in that sort of sense. But I will say the process of redlining was so informative for me. I never grew up in the US. I am non-American. My family are, are immigrants from East Africa. And when I think of redlining growing up, I, I always thought of it as super, like a super American term. It, it kind of confused me. I didn't really fully realize the impact it had on communities, even particularly immigrant communities. Where I grew up in Canada, we don't hear about redlining in the mainstream, but that was a thread where I actually started to pull on while producing the films to understand, did redlining happen around where I grew up? And was that a conversation we just didn't have? And maybe it did happen in spaces I was not in. Uh, maybe in the immigrant communities I was in, we, we didn't see options or choices and we didn't fully understand what that meant when we came to a country. And so sure enough, when I did some research, I learned that redlining actually did exist in Canada with the immigrant communities. And we were in it and we didn't even realize it at times. But sometimes in other countries, it was not referred to as redlining, but existed in other forms. Uh, at its core, redlining is segregation and displacement of vulnerable communities. And to understand the impact that they have, something we think about that is long gone, but is actually crucial in the conversations we're happening right now on financial and economic impact. It's so impactful in the way people have experienced it and how it affects our current democracy. And I thought that that was both fascinating and saddening at the same time, and really understanding that at a deeper level and how that plays a role in our current society, both in the U.S., but also elsewhere, uh, was, was really a mind change for me. Oh, man. And I think on my end, so much. <laughs> I wish we had more episodes of like as soon as I saw those th the, the videos. And for the folks who are listening who haven't checked it out, please go check it out. They're each three minutes and 30 seconds. Super short, super shareable. I hope you all are asking a lot of questions. We have conversation starters as well that you can download. And I think for, for me, Deb, I think like the the part I'm reflecting on, on just so much, I would say like just at a personal story, when we had the screening out in, in both New York at the Vienna, the office in Consumer Reports, Midtown Manhattan, amidst, you know, the 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 Senate hearings with the White House uh, meetings that they were having, just all this stuff. And for me as a, you know, Latina, believe in immigrant, didn't speak English, came and now is here in the middle of Manhattan, uh, about to go speak on this topic was a full circle moment of like, wow, this is like the power of technology is is can be very important because I wouldn't ha I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that, right? I got my career started as in as an electrical engineer, software engineer, mostly because when I was young, I didn't speak English and I went straight into math. Um, and so that was my universal language. And to be there and to be able to provide this opportunity for different circles of people, right? Because we know there are a lot of bubbles that we're trying to break through, through having conversation starts like this was important. And I think for me, it was also the the question of like, who's missing from the room, right? When I went to Oakland, I felt a little emotional. And Amir, I didn't get to tell you, but I felt emotional right before we were going in because it felt like, all right, we're, we are bringing up some really hard topics about people's safety, about how they're able to get access to home and how their home may be valued differently by because of their skin color. We see those headlines, but when when for people to see it directly, right? We see about like uh, the 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 healthcare access and the implications, and knowing that this stuff has been disparate for so many years, right? I mean, the Polk oximeter. How old is that? <laughs> when was that invented? And the fact that it's a key reliant 
till this day, despite all this emerging technology, for me, I felt it was a, a moment that we're not going to be able to turn back, right? But the question is always like, so what do we do next? What's the so what? How can we mobilize people? Because one thing is stirring people up. But if there's no direction of what happens next, I think that's been the biggest realization of being able to say, well, how do we help organize? Fortunately, there is an infrastructure that exists, has existed, as Amira mentioned, from the movements. Now we just have to add this new toolbox. And I think the toolbox that, that we're looking to add is as, as simple as it, as it is, definitions of words, right? When we think about all this tech space, and I, and I come from that space, I also did tech strategy consulting. So believe me, I know all the buzzwords. But if we remove that and we make it just as simple for people to understand, we can unlock so much more better solutions, new ideas, new excitement, and being able to flip the current time that we're in and, and give folks that opportunity to design, to think about different uh, ways and uh, systems. Maybe credit scoring is outdated. Maybe we need something different, fundamentally different, right? Maybe those those models will come in from from some of the indigenous communities models that have existed for many, 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 many aspects, right, that we just haven't been able to bring bring to the mainstream. Maybe there are different just examples of, of ways of that we can tackle. And I think that's been the biggest part for me. The realization is, is how can we, what are we going to do after this? What is the difference, right? And, and for me, it's just really the, I, I hope and I'm optimistic and just having people be like, well, here's a whole different idea. Or here's, now that I know that I, we have this toolbox, now I can, you know, use it this way. And so I'm actually excited to see how we can get more people to build solutions that are leveraging these some of these technologies in a way that is changing. And I think that this is a good step forward, keeping in mind that there is, you know, many, many different organizations that are doing this work day in and day out from different levels of expertise. And we hope to uplift them, to have them be more describable and to be able to support that infrastructure that's missing in a lot of the areas that get overlooked. And the, the redlining, I think, concept for many people Hopefully it brings it into bear of how we, why we need to be much more vigilant, why data matters, why the data we collect matters, but, but also asking ourselves, do we need to be collecting all that data, right? Um, and as somebody who did the redistricting in Oakland, the community power and voice in, is, is something that we need to continue to invite. And as we signed the Oakland screening, they were there <laughs> and they were ready to be like, all right, so what's next? What do we do? Uh, so I hope that we can continue to bring those supports needed and, and continue the work forward. What other issues at the intersection of AI and equity should we be thinking about or taking seriously? What issues around AI and equity and ethics are we not talking about that we should be talking about? What, what keeps you up at night? So much keeps me up at night. <laughs> There's so many issues. And I know that can feel overwhelming. But I think a lot about the issues that are not necessarily in the mainstream discussion right now. I think a lot about emotional trauma. There are ways in which AI and generative AI that are used right now that leave people in a way that feels super vulnerable and emotionally charged. And some of that stems from the trust and in information that is shared. I think about all the propaganda or misinformation at scale and how that is going to create like long-term emotional impacts on people because of serious consequences that it can lead to. 
I also uh, have a background in cybersecurity, and I think about the cybersecurity lens and how these tools are being used to harm people in ways that have serious consequences. Uh, One prime example right now is that there's a rise of fake phone calls from family members using uh, DALI generations of their voice. And so you could be a mom and you're getting a call from your child and the call is saying that I've been kidnapped and to pay a ransom fare. And the FBI has recently profiled this on their scams list, but it is one of the like rising, like fastest rising scams possible. And the result is like sensitive data, financial fraud, like a whole bunch of things. But and I think that's the financial part is important, but the emotional part to go through that is what is traumatizing people. And so, you know, there's obviously these big scale things we need to fix. But I think about the 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 way we're going to feel as humans. Are we going to be able to trust people? What does trust for us look like Um, without critically evaluating everything we know? What is the emotional baggage and trauma we're going to have as a result of these things? And those are those are really big points that I have not seen enough discourse on, and I would love to consider that. And I I think part of that is the discussion on what are we creating for ourselves and how are people going to use it in ways that are harmed. And I think on my end, it's twofold. I think to to Amir's point, the trust, right? Like that. There's also when we zoom out of the U.S. into the global. I think specifically in the AI space, I'm. We've been looking at the policy, right? Which is why uh, a lot of the work that, that this falls under is under our equitable tech policy initiative, where we have nine policy issues that look at, there are integrated issues that are a way to look at how to build more inclusive tech ecosystems, right? Which is not just one issue by itself, but it's really the uh, systems of systems, right? And when I think about that in the global perspective, that's the part that it's positive and negative, but it definitely is where I have my eyes. It's Is policy change going to come from outside of the U.S.? What are those implications in the longer term strategy for this country, for the longer term strategy as well for educational pathways, right? When you think about the types of skilling and upskilling, reskilling, how fast the programs, like there's, uh, where is that knowledge going to be com- coming from? How are we also looking at some of the models of tech workers that are being implicated, right? We've seen a lot of organizing in the U.S., but also outside of the U.S. So it's a little bit of more, not necessarily like the AI tech developments. I think there's a whole slew. That's a whole set of conversations (laughs) that that I know that you've had on your podcast. The folks can go in deeper around like the different models of ethical and rights-based approaches, right, to some of the the design principles that need to be codified, and maybe that could be part of curriculum in the future. But I'd say that some of the implications on the global perspective is where, what are some of the models? Where are they coming from? What's incentives? Is there a better way of having new models of, of governance, given that these tech companies and these products are global, right? They're digital. And so what are what are some of those? I'm not an expert in that part, but I'm curious about that. So I'm, I'm looking at that area. The second part that it's a little bit more closer to the work that we do at the Caper Center. We have a diversity advocate initiative that my colleague uh, Cynthia over Dr. Cynthia Overturn manages, and we recently launched the credentialing, like a, a DIB professionals uh, training program. And I got to participate in the segment of informing around the public policy. And the part that I think for me, as we, this, that keeps me up at night, things that I'm questioning, some of these new roles in the tech companies that, have de- that were developed 
and are also being slashed, right? And when we think about the trust and safety teams, when we think about the design teams, when we think about the some of these compliance teams, right, the government affairs teams, I'm curious of what are some of those new emerging field roles, but also what are some of the ones that we just need to have better product design parameters, right, that start at the leadership, that provide that ethical uh, guidance from the beginning in, in, every, in every way that you do? And, and what are some of those, how can those, those tech worker structures change? What is the future of the tech workers for themselves as, as uh, the designers and, and the folks who will be able to say, no, I don't want that to get built, or we need to find a better way, we need to introduce it. So what are their protections as well are things that I, I keep, that keep me up at night? And as somebody who left the engineering field because I didn't want to be working on certain uh, weapons, <laughs> right? Uh, we're seeing tech being weaponized, and we we it's time for these conversations in a way because also leaving is not the solution. When how can we build forward? I think it's it's the part that it keeps me up awake at, at night. Yeah, we need a diversity of people in here for sure to get these problems solved. But even Lily, what what Lily was talking about in terms of the skill building is like another really big topic. Is I don't think we're building or talking enough about this is skills that our society is going to need now and in the future. I think of the idea where we're having models come out where it's saying, okay, look at the hands of someone in an image to see if they're fake, uh, if the image is fake. And I'm like, okay, well, some of us will get that. Some of us will use it, but that will change. The development of technology will change to get those hands better. And we're already falling behind teaching and fully embedding skills like spotting misinformation, general digital literacy, and now spotting fake images. And these have all impacted our democracy greatly. And so with these new skills, we need, with this new technology, we need skill development for everyone. I think we have time for one last question and maybe to pick up on what both of you are, are mentioning here, which is looking at the future of the workforce. Um, maybe we can speak directly to those who will populate that future workforce. I teach a course on ethics and technology at Cal Poly and a course on ethics and human values and data science at Berkeley. So I try to ask guests who come on the show to speak to those groups. Again, this is the future of the workforce to maybe give some advice that you might propose for the next generation of technologists and humanists graduating from two major pipelines in the tech industry who are likely to end up working as tech workers and maybe designing or leading the development or shaping technological products, maybe even some of the ones that you discuss in the film. And I think as both of you have already said, um, in, in the next generation, all workers will, in a sense, be tech workers, regardless of what whether or not they're actually in the quote, end quote, tech industry. What would you want these future leaders and designers and workers to know or see or understand or be aware of or keep in mind as they move into careers? I love this question. Probably the million dollar question, because <laughs> this is around where the solutions information, right? I think, man, this is, I think that for, for me, I would really love for folks to think about the problems that they're solving. Because I think we are we become in in this space, especially with Silicon Valley, where if you've been sold this narrative, right? We see these on the TechCrunch and all these different places. So and so raised X amount of BC money to do X, Y, and Z, and I always think about like, okay, great. Well, like, what problem are they solving? What impact is it having? How innovative is it? What model is it? Right. So, I think it's a, a really, especially for the next gen coming up of of folks who also have 
not just only the 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 skill set from a you know math and science and uh, STEM type of skill sets, but in the creative skill sets, right, in the critical uh, thinking um, aspect, the civics engagement of asking. And this is from a mentor. I did a TEDx talk just on this topic, but it's like just because we can build it, should we build it? And just because we can scale it, should we scale it? So I think that these are some of the the fundamental design questions that we need to be asking more. We need to be able to have folks also think about when they're approaching the different types of problems that they're that they're solving. What's the problem? And not just not just getting you know lost in the curiosity of technology, which I myself can do, right? I like I love it. That's why I've been in this space. But ultimately, at the day, it's like what's the problem that we're solving? Why is it important? Who is it impacting? Is the, are the folks who are impacted the most directly part of the solution, right? And how can we also leverage the opportunity to, when you th- look at the, the toolboxes of the resources, that could be the technology, that could also be the types of funding you get. What's the right model? What's the right sustainability model? And I think that, especially as we look at different programs in the universities and the ne- next workforce, there is a generation that's being right now given so much more tools and access to information than ever before. But as Amira said before, where's the trust, right? There's a lot of also skill building needed on identifying just if we continue to rely on some of these automated tools, what are we also giving up in that process? So I would just encourage folks to continue to be extra critical thinkers, to continuously upskill yourself. Like for myself, I've gone through three career changes and I still take classes no matter what. I'm still learning about this space as well. And thinking about what are some of the jobs that will, you know, be automated? What are the jobs that will be created? But what are those, which is a majority of the jobs that will need to be partially adapted into this space? And how can we make those be more accessible, more Consciousable as well, and what what does that look like? So I would just say for those folks, stay as a be a critical thinker, continue to upskill and learn all these different tools, and then just making sure that you're really tackling some of the the biggest problems that we have in in, in our society. And, and just a brief plug that this is one of the reasons why it's part of our equitable tech policy initiative. We supported the Federation of American Scientists Day One project to launch our the first ever racial equity tech incubator because we wanted to have folks who may not see themselves perhaps as, you know, software engineers working at these tech companies, but they're the ones that are policymakers. Those are the ones that get to work on some of those solutions. And we're starting to see a lot of folks who are career switching that can go from one to side to the other. Um, and that was my last point, uh, my previous point of what, what are some of those new New pathways that will come that will naturally come up that is a much more of a multi multi skilled multi sector multi uh, approach that I think it's it's it'll be exciting time but also worrying time but I'll stay on the optimistic <laughs> and and have folks encouraging them to solve problems that really matter that are and solve it in a way that brings in the the most impacted at the center and let them be the ones that are solving some of those as well and know that we need you. We need more people in the responsible tech movement or thinking about responsible technology. Uh, I was working in tech for a really long time before I went back to study human rights because I realized how important that was to being in the tech movement and responsible tech movement and thinking through things really critically. I do believe that a better tech future depends on the people, whether it is combining power to create movements that improve technology for everyone or it's individuals who are developing new technologies to address 
the harms others have felt. So there is space for people in here, everyone in here. And we actually depend upon more people coming into these fields and thinking critically. And the one point I would really want to highlight is that everything will change. Um, the world is changing. The technology is moving like ferociously. Uh, it's changing every day. It's going to be in a different place next month, next year, next five years. Um, and all of this will change dramatically. But something I consider that doesn't change is our values. And when we lead with values and practicing designs in ways that are human rights or privacy centered, we can create great things, but not at the cost of people's livelihood, safety, and security. And so I really want to maybe center on that because I'm optimistic. Um, but I'm also realizing that more and more we need to be able to lead with these ideas and we need people to know that what you learn today needs to be able to be adaptable to how the world changes and be able to apply that going forward. Thank you very much, Lily. Thank you very much, Amira. Thank you. Thanks, Deb.